Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. In a long federal career, my next guest has typified people who get things done. A former Marine, she worked at the old U.S. Customs Service, later at U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Now she's the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Homeland Security Department. And she's also a recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Elizabeth Capello joins me now. Ms. Capello, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. Thank you so much. And you really have had a long career and information technology can be a frustrating place where a lot of projects go to die or cost too much or take too long. But you've gotten some things done cited just in your bio, DHS. Tell us about what you've done recently. Well, thank you. I think there are folks who know me really well who would probably characterize me as lacking in any semblance of patience. I have been committed to the DHS mission since leaving the Marine Corps. And frankly, it's hard not to just want to do and do anything and everything possible to serve this mission more effectively and more efficiently. So when I got up to the department, it was really an an interesting career shift for me going from I've been out in the field. I've been working directly with operators for my entire life. And then to get to a headquarters entity, you sort of go, okay, I have to shift how I'm thinking about how I serve the mission. And what are the broader impacts? What are the things that I can do up here that will really make a difference across the board? Not for a single component, but for all the components. Well, first and foremost was the uh, the wide area network and modernizing that transport mechanism because it serves the entire department. And frankly, all of the wonderful new technology whiz-bang tools aren't very useful if the person out at the edge in the field can't get to them. So my first focus was getting that wide area network stabilized and modernized. And of course, that happened right at the same time that we are transitioning the major contract, the EIS, Enterprise uh, Infrastructure Services contract. Right. I wanted to ask you separately about that, too, because but just to get back to the idea of the enterprise network, it's more Mm -hmm. than just a technical thing, because the major challenge of DHS since its inception has been to become an integrated agency. That's such a great point. And I think cohesion has been a hallmark of the last three years during this administration. There's been a real emphasis on putting together the tools and the mechanisms that will allow for better collaboration across the components. You know, we came together with disparate mission sets, disparate funding streams, and it's all kinds of mechanisms there. And so getting the technology in place and modernized to where the components can leverage it to collaborate and to enhance cohesion has been really important. And I think we've been very successful. And you did get, as you said, DHS to switch from the GSA old networks legacy contract to EIS. And everyone's supposed to do that. But I think what's interesting is only half the agencies actually have way past the deadline. So what did that take? That should be a poster child for what everyone's supposed to do here. Yeah, frankly, I mentioned earlier, I don't have a lot of patience. That one's been a stickler because I think, you know, if you start with just the notion of trying to transition the entire civilian federal government at the same time, their networks, I think it sounds good in theory. You get economies of scale, you get these large contracts in place that everybody can use, but the practicality, the reality of actually executing those transitions 
right? While you're trying to modernize, while you're trying to update your environments, and everybody is trying to access the same resources at the same time, in hindsight, probably not the best approach. And I've talked with GSA about this extensively and given some recommendations on what maybe they could consider the next time around, because I think all of us have struggled, and particularly the large agencies, we're competing with one another, right? And there's only so much, you know, it's easy to say, well, the vendors aren't meeting you know, contractual obligations. and But in fairness to them, this was a lot of work at one time. And then obviously we all got hampered by COVID, which impacted everyone's ability to meet those transition goals. And so um, I think it was a, a perfect storm of challenges, but I am very hopeful right now. Everybody is on the right trajectory to get transitioned. And I really appreciate the partnership both across the federal government, I, you know, I've worked extensively with DOJ as well on this and with the vendor community to meet those goals. It's a lot of work. We're speaking with Beth Capello. She's Deputy Chief Information Officer at DHS and also a winner of a Presidential Rank Award this year. And let's go back in history a little bit. You mentioned after joining the federal civilian part of government after leaving the Marine Corps. What in the Marine Corps did you gain in terms of the ability to get things done and lead people in other contexts than the Marine Corps? So I think anyone who has served in the military, and especially in my Marine Corps, will tell you that at a very young age, you are given high levels of responsibility. I was a supervisor, a non-commissioned officer and an NCO at 19 years old. And so you're leading people And you're responsible for everything. You're responsible for ensuring not only that the work gets done, but that they show up for work, that they're paying their bills on time, that they're caring for themselves physically, emotionally, managing their careers. So I think that level of responsibility for people at a young age carries over into everything else you do. Because frankly, look, as leaders, we're not doing the work. It's the workforce. It's the people around us. It's our teams who are getting things done and caring for those teams, caring for those people, knowing their strengths, knowing your own strengths and weaknesses. These are all leadership traits that are taught from the beginning in the military. And in the Marine Corps, you're expected to be a leader from day one. And when you don't have the, say, command and control authority that you do in the military when you're in a non-military setting, how do you then project that idea that what happens outside of the workplace but yet affects the workplace, such as people's personal comportment and their ability to keep up with their bills and these kinds of things, because they can spill back into the workplace. How do you project that caring when legally it's none of your business, but yet (laughs) you do care and you want the work to get done and you care about the people themselves? Sure. You know, one of the things about being part of a large law enforcement organization, as you mentioned, I went from the Marine Corps to the Legacy U.S. Customs Service I worked extensively with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and also Customs and Border Protection with the uh, U.S. Border Patrol. One of the things about working with law enforcement is that idea of caring for people is part of the culture within the law enforcement community as well. DHS has some wonderful employee assistance programs. We're encouraged to care about our employees. And look, when you're managing the work and supporting the mission, if you're seeing behaviors or 
activities that are impacting the ability to serve the mission, then as a supervisor, as a leader, as a manager, your job is to talk with the employee and try to understand how you can help them be successful. And you can do that without you know, getting too far in the weeds with their personal issues, but recommending resources that are available to all employees. But that's paying attention. It's paying attention. It's knowing your people. It's understanding when behavior is anomalous and when you start to see things that don't quite make sense. So first and foremost, know yourself, know your people. And for someone who might be moving from the non-supervisory ranks up to the supervisory ranks and eventually perhaps on to the senior executive service, as you have achieved, what's your best advice for people that have been doing? Because it's not necessarily the same challenge as when you're not doing, but rather managing and supervising. What is the expression, what got you here may not get you there? (laughs) And you know what? That's a very important phrase because... And by the way, that's not original. That's that's from (laughs) Bill Toti, a well-known naval officer who, you know, coined that in a book about his transition and what got him high in the military wasn't necessarily a recipe for success in the business world. And I think you point out a very valuable technique that all leaders should follow, and that's continuous learning, right? You read books, you you look to models, you look to others' experiences. And one of the things that I think, particularly that transition from non-supervisors, especially in the technical arena, you know, you're very technical, you got promoted because you understand the technology, you're delivering against the technology. Now somebody says, but your primary responsibility is going to be for people. Those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand, being super technical and being a leader of people. So learn, grow, continuous improvement. And I would also say, start with recognizing that if you're going to make that transition into a supervisory or management or executive role, that you are shifting your focus and your focus does need to be on the people because none of us is successful without those teams. So that would be my number one thing is to recognize it's a, it's a responsibility. Beth Capello is Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Homeland Security Department and a winner of a Presidential Rank Award this year. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege. And uh, thank you for allowing me to highlight the wonderful things that we do at the Department of Homeland Security. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive On Demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. 
And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.